Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Emma Tucker, Deputy Editor of The Times. Emma started her career at the Financial Times as a reporter before moving to Brussels, where she covered the EU for several years and then edited FT Weekend. She joined The Times in 2007 as Associate Features Editor and became Editor of T2 after just 12 months. She then became Editorial Director in 2012, where she launched The Times Lux Reports, targeting the fashion and luxury market, and took on her current role a year later. Emma, thank you for joining me. Thank you. So, Emma, let's start with a nice, easy, open question, shall we? The Times has booked the kind of failing circulation trends and even overtook the Daily Telegraph recently. What is the secret to the the, the current success of The Times? Well, I don't think it's complicated. I think it's actually very simple. I think our success is down to the fact that we haven't lost sight of our journalism. So it's all about investing in high-quality journalism, making sure we're giving people journalism they can trust, journalism that they won't find anywhere else and it's not losing sight of that I think in in the digital maelstrom that we're in it's very easy to lose sight of purpose but we've been very clear all along that what comes first and foremost is our journalism it's the only paper that I read every single day because I work in New York every every other week and even when I'm in New York I still take the times every day it's very readable yeah it is we 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 put great store in our writers we're very carefully edited still Uh, you know our sub-editors are rigorous and yeah as I said you know for us it's a lot of it is about the quality of the writers and the writing so you know again we set great store by our columnists our funny writers um, our star reporters you know we, we understand that there's a lot of competition out there and we have to stand out we have to be different in order to get people to keep reading us every day. How can you be distinctive, given that there's a, you know hundreds of websites and, and loads of things competing for your readers' attention, not just other newspapers, but other websites, apps, TV on demand, iPlayer? The, the list of things commanding everyone's attention now is huge. Well, that's absolutely. And so obviously our big thing, we decided more or less two years ago that um, we can't compete on rolling news. We're never going to be able to compete with the BBC, the Newswires. Uh, well, if we were going to, it would have required the sort of investment that just isn't we don't have. So we made a very conscious decision not to compete on, on breaking news, but to focus on what we're really good at. And what are we really good at? News, comment, analysis, big reads, features, advice, you know, the quality journalism, as I said before. So we made a decision. We're not going to try and compete with the BBC on rolling news. We're going to do edition-based publishing. And this was what lay behind uh, the revamp of our website. So we publish our morning edition and then we update it three times during the day. And that gives readers uh, a sort of manageable quantity of news to read. They don't feel like they're missing out. They know when the updates come. They know that when they get there, the news will be considered uh, thoughtful. It will have been thoroughly checked. It's news that they can trust. They're not going to come in there to find out, you know, to cover every, you know, twist and turn of a breaking news story. I remember when the Times went behind a paywall, I used to read it once or twice a week at that point. And I remember thinking at the time, that's very foolish of them, given, you know, the huge amounts of really quality news websites like the BBC and The Guardian available free. And I thought, well, this, this isn't going to work. And within about a month, I'd, not only did I miss the Times and then subscribe, but now because I'm a subscriber, I want my money's worth. And I read it every day now rather than sort of twice a week. So what I thought was folly at the time has subsequently, in hindsight, turned out to be genius. Has that been the journey of a lot of readers? Uh, Yeah, I mean, our paywall was sort of magnificent in its impermeability when we first put it up. And 
the number of detractors we had, everyone said, this is a big mistake. The internet is all about free content. Uh, you know, information wants to be free. You're going to lose all your readership. And, you know, the, the, the original, the initial figures were cataclysmic in terms of, you know, who was the numbers reading us. I was one of the naysayers, you, you, I admit. Yes, well, I think a lot of people were, but, you know... the. I think there was a sort of vision all along that you don't get quality journalism for free. If you want to read good quality journalism, you're going to have to pay for it. So we had this this impermeable paywall, which we have now softened for good reason. And uh, in fact, now five years on, it, it turns out everybody, pretty much everyone, is following. Unless, you know, you're funded by the taxpayer or you're a charity, the only way you're going to be able to fund your, your journalism is by charging for it. And so everybody is sort of, we're, 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 we're softening our paywall, others are hardening theirs, but we're all sort of coalescing around a similar model in the middle. So when you say you're softening the paywall and it's not a hard paywall, how does that work? Is that, is that osmosis now? How does it, I'm trying to think of how that would work. Semi-permeable membrane. Well, it's, when I say soft, I, I, that's probably the wrong word. It's not that soft. It's All it is is that we... Uh, realised that there are audiences out there who weren't reading us, that uh, we weren't necessarily reaching all the people we'd like to reach. So we introduced a scheme called registered access, which means that in return for your email details, you can read two free articles um, a week uh, on the Times. And this has allowed us to... to, It allows people to sample our journalism who previously they couldn't without taking out a a subscription. And that's been fantastic because we now have a pool of near on 4 million registered access users, people who at some point have have given us their details in return uh, for reading one of our articles or two of our articles. And uh, that's been great because that's helped us with the marketing push to then try and convert some of these registered access users into fully paid up subscribers. Because it is almost a philosophical uh, kind of textbook dilemma, isn't it? How do you showcase your journalism without showing people it? Because the minute you've shown them it, they then don't need to pay for it. Exactly. And so what we hope is that by uh, le- allowing people to sample our journalism, they'll be so hooked or they'll they'll appreciate it. You know, you can you can continue on via registered access to readers for as long as you like. But at some point, we hope you'll say, you know what, there's more than two articles a week I want to read here. I'm going to convert. And, you know, if you look at other other newspapers, they're following similar models. I think the New York Times, you can read five articles for free a month, which actually makes them less permeable than us at the moment. And and others are following similar schemes. So, you, 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 you know, you're you allow people to read to sample but only up to a point and after that they have to pay but it's been it's been good for us to 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 get our journalism out there and encourage these uh, registered access users I mean, I did start with a, a soft opening question in terms of what has the paper got right, but what has the paper not got right yet in terms of what's top of your to-do list in uh, in terms of steering the paper in the direction that you want to go? What what do you need to add to it? What do you need to remove from it? Oh, How do you perfect the formula, I suppose, is the question. Well, I mean, the thing about... Well, there are always improvements um, to be made and obviously the, the challenge for us, as it is for so many legacy publishers is getting the balance right between print and digital so we can't afford to to neglect our print product because so many people still read the times in print but equally we can't allow old print practices to hold us back digitally so it's a constant sort of nudging forwards on the digital front uh whilst whilst maintaining the quality of the print product i think that's our, our big challenge and you know you you live and learn doing that What's your relationship with Facebook like? I mean, because I know the the Times has led the way over the past year with investigative reports into extremist content on YouTube and concerns over Facebook. But I imagine you you still need Facebook to drive traffic to your your own website as well. Yeah, I mean, like all publishers, Facebook's 
important to us. Um, it's the most effective platform uh, for getting our journalism for you know getting our journalism out there. Um, it drives a lot of traffic, just as it does for other publishers. So at that level, you know, Facebook's important to us. Um, that's something you know we have we have little choice there really. These these uh, social media platforms are very very powerful. We have to use them. Journalistically, our relationships perhaps a bit patchy because uh, we obviously had this big investigation led by our our investigative reporter Alexi Mostras, who looked at the way in which uh, platforms such as Facebook were not being held to account for what they were effectively publishing online. And where do you think that story is ultimately going to end up? Because it seems to me that Facebook's under uh, rightly under under more pressure than ever. It's, it's very difficult to know because at the moment it's still pretty much the wild west out there in terms of sort of these big digital um, monopolies. There, there's a sort of feeling that they need to be reined in, they need to be regulated, they need to um, have the same sort of um, restrictions placed on them that regular publishers have. But it's very difficult to know uh, how you do that. I mean, uh, they're global entities, so where, where would you, how would you regulate them? Where would that regulation come from? They're also very popular, so it's difficult to sort of restrict something that people like. Having said that, you know, there are, the European Commission has fined Google, a couple of times now has taken them to task. Uh, Germany has replaced, uh, has fines Facebook now if they put up sort of dodgy content. The pressure is on. And I think I think it, some of it will come from from within the companies themselves who are much more conscious of their, their reputations now. But I, I honestly, I don't know. I think it's still very nascent. You know, I think there will be a, a call for more regulation, but I'm not entirely sure how it will come about. You mentioned there the international element of Facebook and Google and so on, but how has the Times internationalised with the with the uh, um, opportunity that digital has presented? I mean, I've, I follow you guys on Twitter and I know you call yourselves the Times of London. Mm. And of course, I'm very London-centric, so I'm thinking, why have they added of London? And then, of course, you know, looking at it from a global Twitter point of view, there's hundreds of newspapers in the world called the Times. So, rightly, the Times of London. Do, do you have many international readers? You know, I subscribe to the New York Times. Do you have people in New York subscribing to the Times? We do. In fact, most we have uh, our, our global subscribers are very important. We have a global subscription offer that is um, we launched uh, about a year ago. That's somewhat cheaper than the. It's a digital only subscription. Obviously, most of our global digital subscribers come from the US, and uh, but we also have a lot in Germany, France, uh, Australia, uh, India, other areas. In fact, I think we have, I'm pretty certain we have subscribers in every country in the world. We even wow. have subscribers in North Korea, we're told. So, Hence it's digital only, because yeah. posting a copy of the paper to New Zealand will right. obviously mean that by the yeah. time it arrives, but Trump we, will have done something else. Actually, you yeah. could just have the perpetual headline, Trump has done something outrageous, so, yeah, and that exactly. could work for any day. But we think the voice of London's important. You know, I mean, you can read the New York Times to get the sort of liberal voice of America. Um, you can read the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you've got the FT, which is a global newspaper. But we feel very much that we're the voice of London, and that still, you know, pre- presents a different perspective on world affairs. So, you know, our global subs are very important. Now, what does a deputy editor do? You know, I've got visions of. Uh, I used to watch Star Trek: The Next Generation. Are you kind of Jean Luc Picard's Will Riker or Spock to uh, Captain Kirk? Well. I think what a deputy editor does depends very much on what the editor is like. So uh, my editor, John Witherow, he is a very, very hands-on editor. So I'm not one of those deputy editors that does everything um, while the editor goes out for lunch. He's very hands-on. So I'm very much more focused um, at the moment. You know, I'm very much more focused on digital than he is. You know, we have a massive 
our head of digital has got a huge task of transforming the newsrooms. He needs people to help him advocate that in the newsroom. So that's very much the role that I'm playing. And uh, so, so yeah, I'm very focused on digital. I'm also I sit across the relationship with commercial more than John does because uh, you know we, that's how we divvy it up. Um, I talk a lot to marketing. I sort of, I mean, I do sit in on all the regular meetings of the day, and obviously I edit when he's not there. But we have quite a sort of good uh, uh, distinction of roles. So, what is a typical week then? Typical week or a typical day? Uh, well, both. <laughs> Typical day. You've got an hour, so yeah. All right, okay. Well, typical day. So, so a typical day. I try to get in. We we've recently introduced uh, an early morning digital news meeting. So I try to get in for that. What at, time's that? That's start? at nine thirty, uh, just to sort of see what's being. Because at that point, we'll talk about what we're going to do for the editions, rather than focusing just on the the print edition that obviously goes to bed at ten o'clock. We're looking at well, what are we going to do at midday? How are we going to update stories? What big numbers are we going to do for the five pm edition? So I try and go to that meeting. After that, I'll sit and read as much as I can on other websites, other newspapers, uh, all the hundreds of emails I get from news publications. It's actually very difficult to know where to begin, but I'll try and get across as much as I can. Then uh, at quarter to 11, we have an ideas meeting with the editor and various heads of department. We'll all come together and talk about what's interesting us that day or where we think we should be doing more or, you know, if there are interesting stories that we want to follow up. Then we have conference, which uh, takes the best part of an hour. That's, you know, everybody presents their lists for the day. Then after that, it'll either be maybe uh, a lunch or sort of talking to people or, you know, looking ahead, reading, you know, what it's like. And that will carry on till I'll sort of scurry around till about, well, till 3.30 when we have afternoon conference, which then lasts another hour. And then after that, it's into the uh, evening edition um, and it's very much sort of reading until we put put the paper to bed. I mean, I, I, I usually go home at about seven thirty, eight o'clock. So it's quite a long day. Quite but, a long day then. But, if it, but not, not as long as if I'm editing, in which case I'll stay to more like 8.30 and then hand over to our excellent night team who will uh, see everything off. Do you have like the ratio for what an ideal paper would be in terms of light and shade, international, national columnists? Do you email David Aronovich and say, I want you to rant on about this this week? Or does he just send his copy in and he he talks about whatever he wants? How do you manage someone like Danny Finkelstein? Well, I think the great strength of the Times, and this is something we're very conscious of and we try to promote every day is that we try to have a range of voices so we're neither coming at you from the left nor are we coming at you from the right we're trying to offer you both sides of the argument and that's played out very much on our comment pages where we'll have uh, people from both sides of the spectrum are uh, writing their opinions so it's and I think that's a strength for us it's a great advantage for us to, to do that so that's very much how we'll sort of manage the columnist try to have a you know both voices on any one day and, and and anyone who reads the Times will know we do have a, a very you know a good broad range of voices there, and then in terms of the news run, well you know again it's it can't all be I mean at the moment it does all feel very doom and gloom so we do always try and offer something a bit more constructive something more positive, an um, antidote to an, reality uh, yes an antidote to reality we very much um, we value uh, humorous writing which is actually much harder to come by than, than you'd imagine. But we do have a, a good My roster. My week, love it. Yes, Hugo Rifkin, He's absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Um, Giles Corrin's very funny. Uh, Patrick Kidd, you know, we, we set great store by our, our humorous writers because, you know, that's, in the end, if you can make people laugh, I think you're far more likely to keep them satisfied than if you're going to make them feel miserable. So, yeah, we do value that. 
Is the problem these days that you've almost got too much news? Because, you know, I used to uh, know a lot of journalists, particularly in local media, where they would be scratching around for something for tomorrow's splash or whatever. But as now, there's just so much going on with Brexit and Trump and North Korea and almost everything else. Is that almost the challenge what to focus on? You'll never get a journalist to say there's too much news. <laughs> <Yes>. Never. <laughs> I, I, the news at the moment is like boulders rolling down a mountain. They just keep crashing down. I mean, ever since the referendum, it hasn't stopped. It's an onslaught, it's, isn't it's it? It's an onslaught. But it's, I mean, the news may be sort of big and challenging, but it's fantastic time for journalism because, you know, it's, it, people need to make sense of it. It's, we're living in extraordinary times. I mean, Brexit is a massive challenge. People won't be... Whenever we write anything about Brexit... We have incredibly high engagement. We can measure it all now with all the sort of data tools we've got. People are fascinated by Brexit. Trump, I mean, he's he's the gift that keeps on giving in terms of news. All the although it, he's a lunatic that will one day kill us all. In um, my view, in your view, <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. We're we're neutral on our news coverage, um, but no, I mean it's 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 it's, a, it's never been, and actually in many ways as well because there's so much chat out there, so many. So many people, so much partisan comment. Again, people say, oh, it must be awful being a journalist. Now, I actually think it's a really good time to be a journalist for a reputable publication because what you're trying to do is help people to make sense of these extraordinary times we're living through. So if you're a trusted source, which we are, it's a good time. You know, our mission is clear to explain, analyse, comment and help people make sense of, of, of these great historic events that are taking place around us. I, I agree with you. But on the other hand, journalism seems to be under attack as never before. You've got the president calling out fake news all the time. Laura Koonsberg, the BBC's political editor, had to have a bodyguard at Labour Party conference. You've got a, a hue and cry, not the hue and cry, obviously, but marching on BBC Scotland, complaining about Nick Robinson. You know, you've got um, uh, Donald Trump and standing next to Theresa May checkers saying CNN's fake news. David Aronovich on the and on Twitter, is everyone's always having a go at him saying, you know, you're just a Murdoch stooge. It seems to be that no one wants to, uh, everyone wants to shoot the messenger as well. Yes, they do. But again, I would say, if anything, that gives us a, a greater sense of mission. There's, in my mind, there's never been, a, since I've been a journalist, there's never been a more important time to be one now, to be providing clarity and uh, a, a voice of reason in all the sort of madness that there is. So yes, it's, it, it's nasty if you get trolled or if people write unpleasant comments or, or under what you've written but you know I, I think if you if you're clear about what your mission is that that's better you know that's something that you can handle the, the commenters on the times article seem to be less hideous than say the guardian and various other other things because they're subscribers and you've identified them there seems to be a certain level of nastiness that are anonymity grants you you know you, you read something on the guardian and I, I almost don't look mm. below the line whereas at least on the times yeah they might be a little bit churlish or a bit whingy but they're, they're not unpleasant or aggressive well again that's one of the big advantages of our subscription model so we have uh you know very uh dedicated commenters subscribers um and they 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 sort of form a lot of them form communities around certain subjects and this they can come to a Times article, they can conduct a, 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 a conversation underneath an article in a relatively civilized forum, you know, the, which is something you can't do on the, the on the internet because it's anyone can pile in and write offensive comments. 
you're in a you're in a sort of trusted community here, and it's, it's we've we've looked a lot at, at our commenting, um, and one of the things we found is that when our journalists go in and join in the conversation, people our readers absolutely love that, and also they're much they're much more likely to come back and comment again. They're they're less likely to churn their subscription. We have a challenge getting more women to comment below the line, but that's something that our new engagement editor is actively looking at and looking at ways to get more women to come in but as it, we, we've actually invited our commenters into the office and we had a group of them uh, we picked a bunch that are pro-Brexit and a bunch that were anti-Brexit we brought them all well, together you just let them fight it out we put them around a table and they, you gave them they all a left. shot of espresso each and they left, loads of chocolate they left best friends vowing never to be rude to each other again almost but you know, it was it was a really interesting exercise. They loved it, and it was interesting for us to talk to them about why they comment below, below the line. I mean, one one man said, "Well, you know, I'm really fascinated by politics, uh, but my wife and daughter don't want to talk to me about it, so I I go onto the Times website and I engage in discussion there." And it was it was it was a really interesting. So we're very keen to build communities around um, subject areas uh, with our subscribers because it is a civil forum for them, unlike so much that is out there on the internet. But to state the obvious, that's that's not what a newspaper did decades ago. You simply just bought it on the newsstand, read the news, and then you know handed it over to the chip shop so they could put fish and chips in it the next day. I mean, nowadays, you know, you're talking of community building and all of these kind of things. It it seems to me that digital is changing the nature of what a newspaper is. Well. I think it's changing the nature that a newspaper engages with its readers. I mean, our fundamental mission to provide, you know, news that you can trust, uh, good high quality comment analysis, uh, that's not going to change. But what is changing is that we're in a dialogue with our readers and that can only be a good thing. I mean, we've always had a letters page and this is just an extension of that. And, you know, it's it we get feedback uh, from them. I mean, you know, which we obviously is useful to us as well. Plus, we've got you know, like everybody now, we we have all this data to measure what's what really what really keeps readers engaged, and that's something that can help inform us in the future. How do people like to read things? Do they prefer it with a picture gallery? Would they like an interactive to go with it? You know, what 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 is it that really engages our readers? It's fascinating, but it's also very useful. Because in the old days, the only metric you really had was newsstand. How many copies mm. did we sell last Tuesday? Whereas now you can look at dwell time on individual articles, how they, uh, you know, the how they came inbound, where, where they left to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is there almost too much information now? No, no. And we've always been very clear: uh, the data that we use is we're data informed, not data led. So you know, oh, that's good. <laughs> well, it, you know, it depends. Some articles are good for reach, so you'll do something something that reaches a lot of people we get a lot of registered access from it other articles uh, are good for converting people to subscriptions others are not so good at converting but once people have bought a subscription they'll spend more time reading uh, so they're good for engagement uh, so it, you know we look at articles how many comments they attract uh, how many saves they get how many shares I mean it's just a rich data that we never used to have that helps us I think to produce a better product I mean, before becoming deputy editor, you were in charge of creating that close relationship between the editorial and the commercial teams. How did that? How did that pan out? Well, it's, it's that old uh, conundrum. Church, you know, well, it's not a conundrum. It's you know, how do you separate church and state? So again, I think people tend to overcomplicate this, but in my, to my mind, it's not complicated. You have to. I think. I think the test that I always used to apply was obviously we wanted to help commercial because you know. It's tough out there. We need to make money. But we were never going to compromise editorial integrity. So the test is always, if you're a reader 
and you're reading something either in the Times print edition, on the website, on the app, do you know where you are? Do you know whether you're reading something that's been produced by a Times journalist or do you know whether you're reading something that's been commercially sponsored? Yeah, I think, I think you have, so long as readers know where they are, then I, then I, I don't think it's complicated. Um, this, uh, people get very exercised about native advertising, which is obviously something that uh, you see a lot of on digital news products. What's native advertising? Na- nati- native advertising will be uh, what we used to call advertorials, ah. so sponsored content. But again, partnership arrangements. Partnership arrangements. As they call them now, yeah, some do. Yeah, I think so long as you again, if, if a you know, so long as a reader understands that a piece of content has been sponsored by a commercial partner, then there's no problem with that. And and actually, some of it can be very good. There's no, you know, it's there's no reason why it has to be low quality. Just so long as the reader knows where they are. Anyway, so so it was useful for me to sort of understand the commercial pressures uh, that, that that were there but also to sort of act as a sort of gatekeeper for editorial values and integrity. I started reading the newspapers when I was a kind of young teenager, and I can remember The Observer having, like, pull-out sections about obscure African countries that were sort of, you know, 20 pages about come to Zanzibar. And it would say at the top, you know, working in partnership with the Zanzibar Tourism Authority. I mean, clearly they'd, they'd paid The Observer to put that together, and it was distributed as such and declared to the reader. There yeah. doesn't seem to be a problem with that. No, exactly. And, and, and all that happens, on it, it, it's the same principle on, in digital. I mean, I think there has been some blurring of the lines, but not by us. Is it more difficult to be a journalist these days? I mean, we've talked about the commercial pressures, but in terms of the editorial pressures, you know, politicians wanting their their side, and and people seem to be more uh, quicker to complain these days, both privately in terms of intrusion, but, you know, politically in terms of balance. Or, or is it basically the same challenge it always has been? I think I think journalists are under more pressure now. It's inevitable, you know. You write a column or you write a piece. Somebody takes objection to it, and there's a you have to put your tin hat on straight away. Whatever you've said, yeah. So, in fact, this came up when we were discussing comments. One of our journalists said he he didn't want to get involved in commenting under the line because reading the comments was so distressing. And you know, I had to tell him to man up and get on with it. But you know, I I think it is difficult. I think I think being trolled on social media is pretty unpleasant. So you have to develop a very thick skin. It is unpleasant. I yeah. get trolled from time to time, yeah. even me. Yeah. You know, I'm no one. But, uh, you know, I get probably once or twice a week, someone, someone will be beastly mm. to me on Twitter and it yeah. stings a bit. Yeah, and it's also harder to walk away. I mean, even, even you know, we, we're very careful. We're very, you know, we publish our news in a very considered manner. But even so, journalists are, you know, they, they may have to file. In the old days, you only had to file once for the evening edition. Now you may have to file for the 9am update, midday, 5pm. Uh, the news never goes away. And uh, so I think I think I think it is people at the Times work incredibly hard. The journalists work very, very hard um, and they're very productive. So, uh, you know, I think they always did. But I think it's tougher now to actually sort of walk away from it. How do you balance the articles then? As you said earlier, in terms of most readers of that edition will already know the immediate news because they'll have listened to the Today programme or watch BBC Breakfast or Sky News or whatever. Uh, they'll be on Twitter. So when you're... But you've also got to cater for the people that are reading the paper for the actual news. So you've got to tell them what's happened in a way that doesn't repeat a lot of the readers will have already heard and then gone to the analysis and their thoughtfulness. How do you do that? Well, I think I think that works because we're not chasing breaking news. So the edition is sacrosanct. So overnight, the website is a fairly good replica of the of what's in the newspaper. And so you're off stone at what nine o'clock, ten t- o'clock, ten, ten, and then we have a second edition uh, at midnight. 
And that that forms the basis of the next day's coverage, including online. So obviously by 5 p.m. the next day, a lot of the stories will have been updated and there will be extra stories will have been put up based on what we do at midday and at 5 o'clock. But the actual core edition will still be there. If you want to find it, you'll be able to find it. And I think that um, that allows people who are, you know, if you haven't got around to reading the paper and you pick it up late in the day or you you go on on the website late in the day, you'll still get the core of that day's times. Um, but if you have read the morning edition cover to cover, which means you would have a very long commute or a lot of time, you know, if you then come back at five o'clock, you'll see how the, the, the stories have been updated. And I think I think readers like that. They, they, I think there is a slight sense of... There's too much news out there. So if you can if if you can present them a carefully curated product, they like that. They feel that they're on top of it, but they're not overwhelmed by it. And I think that's a real strong point of our our model. How do you deal with sort of morning based speculation? So, for example, on a Wednesday, if the prime minister's uh, going to have to react to something at prime minister's questions, obviously your morning edition will speculate about the options that Theresa May has available to her. But then in the afternoon, uh, not only is, has the prime minister chosen what she's going to say, the, the article about speculating about her choices is almost redundant at that point. Isn't yeah, it? so we, we would update that article. You know, you would update it in line with what what she said. I mean, a lot of a lot of the morning speculation on politics comes through our red box email, which is goes out every morning, and that's the sort of setting you up for the political day, uh, written by Matt Chorley, and that that allows a lot of the speculation and sort of you know gossip to get out there. And then obviously we use the the addition to update what actually happens or what is really said. And the Red Box podcast is is fantastic. I mean, I, I think it's the second best podcast out there, frankly. Oh, yes. <laughs> very proud of our, our, of, this, of our Red Box podcast. It's, it's very successful, along with some of our, our most successful podcasts are that, uh, The Game, which is our football one. Which and, I've never listened to because I oh, consider well, football to be a waste of time. Well, you'll have to give it a go. I'm aware that that's a minority view. <laughs> but So tell me about podcasting then, because... Uh, you know it, that that's not something a newspaper would have done ten years ago. No, and and in all honesty, we're very judicious with our podcasts. We don't we don't try to do too many because there's again there's a lot of competition out there, and we only want to do things that um, are going to you know actually worthwhile. So as well, back a, to that distinctive word yeah, again, distinctive aren't we? exactly. So we apply the same rules to our podcast as we do to our our website and print products. And how do you develop them? Because, I mean, you've, you've, you've already mentioned that football and politics, but there, there's a myriad of other subjects that you could choose. The Guardian, for example, has a great science podcast. They, they used to have a really good media podcast, but they then cancelled it. Well, we have a uh, podcast called Walking the Dog, which is uh, people walking their dogs, so it proved very successful. The other successful podcast is the tech podcast, which is produced by the by the Sunday Times, Daddy Fortson, uh, tech correspondent. And that's that's a big success as well. But again, we're we're judicious about how we do podcasts because, at the, you know, there was a time when every, the answer to everything seemed to be a podcast. But it turned out the numbers of people listening to them just weren't very high. So we've scrapped the ones that don't attract a lot of listeners. Focus on the, the, the ones that work. Don't do any one to one media interviews. Otherwise, I'll be at I your don't office. Think we will. <laughs> But but in a sense, there's not just podcasting. There's video, there's anim, animated graphics. I remember uh, I often read the Times on my iPad and it will say, you know, click here to, for this pop out that's going to explain Brexit in three animations. Good luck there. But, uh, you know, you've almost got too many choices in terms of how do you decide what to focus on? Well, again, you know, that's a really good point. I think there have been 
you know, what happens is we do something that's a success and then suddenly everybody wants to do that. So an interactive Q&A drives a lot of engagement or traveling. Suddenly everybody wants to do it so that we sort of over... We get overexcited about things. But again, we're learning, you know, the, the, the sort of digital journalism, is a, it's a constantly evolving process. And we now have a very effective interactive team who they have a very good sense of what works and what doesn't work. And they work closely with our reporters. They work closely with the news editors to say, OK, let, we're going to do a big piece about the weather. What, what, what would really enhance uh, digitally a big piece about this extraordinary weather we're having? Is it maps? Is it a sort of timeline? Is it a chart of temperatures? Oh, is it a video? I mean, you know, we're learning as we do it, but, but we have real experts now in the newsroom who really know what works and what doesn't work. And, and in that sense, our newsroom is changing. It's not just um, reporters rushing around, you know, shoe leather, notebooks. It's skilled, I have to say, they tend to be younger uh, digital journalists who have a different perspective on the, on on how to put the news out there. But the lovely thing is, you'll often see them working with some of our oldest, most seasoned journalists um, who want who realise that these sort of young digital journalists can actually improve their what they're doing, improve their articles, and give them greater reach or you know greater prominence. And so, you know, it's it, a lot of what we're doing at the moment is bringing these two worlds together to, to produce what we, you know, journalism that we can be proud of. And what does drive traffic to the site? What does drive clicks? Because, I mean, you guys with your paywall, aren't as gu- you're not guilty of this, but, you know, without with no disrespect to say the Independent or the Telegraph, they're very much, they're quite clickbaity in their tweets and when they're trying to drive traffic, you know, five things you didn't know about mm. this and click here to reveal the one secret about X, Y and Z. But do you know when you're writing a story and you're putting it online, whether that's going to be a driver of new traffic to the site? Like you say, is it about the weather or sport or football? But but the the great beauty of our paywall is that we don't have to worry about that. Once you get behind that paywall, either as a reader or a journalist, you're just free to concentrate on good journalism. We don't do clickbait because we don't have to. We've got a, we've got we've got subscribers who pay good money to read quality journalism. I decline interest as one of them. <laughs> so no, so the great joy of it is that is that we you know we don't do, clickbait is not not something that we have to worry about. Obviously, we want people to read... You know, sometimes we'll do an article that, f- for some reason, gets massively picked up um, and drives a lot of traffic, but it may not, in the end, you know, it'll, it'll perhaps sort of drive a lot of interest, but it won't convert people to subscriptions. I mean, it's a nice one-off thing to have, but what we're all about is making sure that once we've got people who to subscribe, that we're giving them what they want. And that's where a lot of our energy is focused on, keeping our subscribers happy Keep making sure they don't churn, even while we're trying to grow. And I should have said earlier, you know, we've now reached a half a million subscribers, which was uh, we passed that milestone in June. Congratulations! It's a very, very you know, big moment for us, and that, you know, it's a damn good number as well. Will there always be a print edition of the Times? There will certainly be a print edition of the Times uh, for the foreseeable future. Of our half a million subscribers. More are now digital than print, but it's only it's only it's a very sort of you know it's pretty much fifty fifty. Uh, lots of people prefer to read the paper in print, and and so you know we we're not it, it's not going to disappear. So um, we're always going to be tree killers. We, we will carry on being tree killers and uh, <laughs> driving around in white vans yeah. for a lot longer yet. I mean, I think there was a time maybe five ten years ago when it felt like print was under. 
immense pressure. And, you know, there were lots of predictions that, that you know, publications would become digital only. As it happens, it turned out, you know, it was the independent. But the, the, the print issue, the print edition is still so important. You know, once it's, it's a shop window, people prefer to read in print. It's a marketing tool. Uh, so, yeah, there, there will be, I can't say there will always be a print edition of the Times, but certainly... Yeah, it'll be around for a lot longer yet. Well, I get the train into London every day and they offer free copies of the paper copies of The Times. Uh, but I wouldn't even consider doing that because it's I'd have to pick it up, whereas I can read exactly the same content on my iPad and on my iPhone. So even though it's free, I would prefer the digital version. But you're youthful. That's, well, how, you, that's you. how you like to read your news. I mean, there are more print editions read on a Saturday, for example. Uh, because I think, you know, there's a difference between when you're sitting on a crowded train and you want to, you know, read the news on your phone. That's very convenient. But at a weekend, perhaps you like to sit down and spread the papers out across the table and, and to have a more leisurely read. So, you know, it just I think there's a time and place for the print product and a time and place for the digital edition. But certainly all the growth, all the growth is on the digital side. Do you think there's something to be said for that kind of curated linear experience of reading a paper, either physically or, or on an iPad, for example, where you actually have to turn the page and then the whole journey from front page through all the various sections and you deciding the importance of where to place a story is still important because you know on websites and particularly on the iphone you can it's almost like cafeteria mm. uh, where you can pick and choose the bits you want in the order whereas i actually still enjoy that that wholly kind of curated journey mm. through the news well it's, it's very interesting if you look at the um reviews on uh of, of the app a lot of them say Thank goodness that the app is clear, it's hierarchical, it's easy to navigate. It seems to me exactly what you're saying. People people still want to get the sense that they've read an edition, which, again, brings me back to our editions. We're not trying to do too much. We're trying to give people a package that, um, that, that that's manageable. And uh, so, so people like the design of the app because it's not complicated, it's very clear... Uh, the sections are there. You can you can read it as pretty much as you would read the print print product. Now you were the editor of the excellent Times Two section. I mean, how important is Times Two as a kind of space for more leisurely reads? Can they survive that transition to that kind of quick snack digital world? You see, I'm not sure that that the digital world is quick snack because one of the things that works really well for us are the are the longer reads. People, you know, they, they do very well for us in terms of engagement. And the great thing about T2 is, it, you know, it, it goes back to what we were saying before about the sort of relentless gloom of the news. T2 can be much more upbeat. Less gloomy. Less gloomy. <laughs> uh, great fun. Lots of fun writing. Uh, useful as well. You know, people like to be given advice. So, no, there's the, the T2 is a, a magnificent section. And, uh, yeah, it's very useful for us to be able to, to have, you know, a space where you can get away from some of the more grim stuff out there. Now, you started your career at the FT, eventually becoming FT weekend editor. How different is the FT culture and readership to the Times? Um, obviously, the FT, it's, it's really interesting. It's, a, a, you know, a fantastic paper uh, with a global audience. So one of the things when, when I moved to the Times was you get much more response uh, to the journalism. I mean, the FT had this, this huge global audience, but it meant that... They, it, often felt like slightly more remote slightly more remote exactly um and it's, it's, it's interesting as somebody a journalist for the ft um lucy calloway she wrote a piece for the ft about this transition from being a journalist to being a teacher 
And then it was so great, I asked her to do it for us, which she did. And she said, I mean, you, this, in many ways, it's not surprising, but she said she got a much bigger response from her piece in The Times than she did from her piece in the FT because obviously more people in Britain were... were we're reading it. I, so, I don't read the FT during the day, during the weekdays, if I'm honest. But I love FT Weekend. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great paper, and there's wonderful stuff in there. But it's a, it's a very different audience from from ours. So we've we're, we we you know we've got the the luxury really of of, of a focusing on this sort of you know British audience, which does you know help you to focus how you approach the news. Whereas uh, the FT's uh, you know appealing to a much bigger. Or, or rather a sort of more diffuse audience. Do you, when you're looking at the metrics and the kind of dwell time on the website, do you do you see a lot of people like me that, for example, skip past anything to do with sport, particularly football? Because the reason why I ask is, you know, you've got the home news and then you've got world. If I'm honest, and this is my to my discredit, I tend to be slightly more skippy during the world things mm-hmm. the first one or two stories i might read but then after that and and to my discredit i'll i tend to read less and less of the world news I, I, mm. and i know that's wrong i ought to but i don't can you tell that are there certain articles that are journalistically important but you can then tell aren't as well read um yes and i, I don't think you should beat yourself up if you're not reading world news i mean there'll be other people who read world news rather than you know home news um you know, there's no there's no right or wrong. Um, I think one of the challenges for newspapers in the future is going to be deciding what what not to publish it's as much as what to publish. So, uh, you know, at the moment, we're these massive bundles that present readers with everything from uh, politics to fashion to sport to arts to obituaries you know which we we're presenting the, the ultimate bundle and i think probably going in the future there will be a rational there will be some of the what we currently cover we will stop covering because we'll realize you know one of the great things about digital is you can realize you you can work out what people are reading what they aren't reading if if honestly there are whole sort of swathes of articles that no one's looking at why would you carry on doing it and also you know you need to focus your resources where it on the stuff that's really important so i think but it's, it's going to be a very slow shift it's not going to happen overnight are there still obstacles to women getting the top jobs at newspapers is it possible that you could be the first female editor of the times well i can't speak for other newspapers but i can honestly say um i don't think there are obstacles to women at the times we have a lot of very senior women there John identifies as male. That's what I was supposed to say. The editor definitely (laughs) identifies as male. (laughs) And, uh, yep, that certainly goes without saying. And No, no, I I, I mean, from my perspective, uh, we have a lot of senior women. I don't think there are obstacles to to women getting on. I mean, you know, the issue for British newspapers that I don't think is so much women, it's that we're not very diverse, and that's, that's a challenge. That's much more of a challenge, frankly, than whether or not women... Um, are getting promoted. I mean, we have our head of production is a woman. We've got a new head of news starting. Uh, it's going to be a joint job share, one man, one woman. You know, obviously our chief executive is a woman. I'm a woman. Our Saturday editor is a woman. I mean, you know, really, it, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that there was any sort of discrimination. Last couple of questions then. You went to school in East Sussex and then New Mexico. That's an unusual combination, is it not? Uh, yes, I think it is a bit unusual. And But... Well, Do I, tell. I can explain. Please. Uh, so um, I was at my uh, my local school, happily getting on with my O-levels. 
Oh, um, so we're not in New Mexico at this point. No, no, then. we're not in New Mexico at all. But I saw um, uh, an advert for a school, an international school, for, which is actually for a movement called the United World Colleges. And I'd vaguely heard of the, the founding college, which was set up in the 60s in Wales called Atlantic College. And I thought, oh, that looks fun. I'll apply. I think East Sussex back then still had enough money to give scholarships uh, to these schools. They gave two a year. Although, actually, by the time I applied, they'd abolished the scholarships. But so I, anyway, that's another story. Um, so I applied to go to United World College and totally unexpectedly won a scholarship to a school that had just opened in New Mexico. It was called, it was called the United World College of the American West. And so I set off with two other British girls aged 50. Well, no, we were 16. We did our O-levels. Wow. To this school in the, literally in the middle of nowhere. That's, with, that is brave. <laughs> I know, but it was... I had the, And, you know, when we got there, we did the International Baccalaureate, the children from all around the world, um, and, you know, the wonderful New Mexico landscape. So I, I, it, was, it was a sort of life-changing uh, decision to go there. Now, one story you didn't expect to write was was being on holiday in Italy, close to where that major earthquake struck. How, how scary was that experience? Because were you kind of traumatised or upset? Because Isabel Hardman, for example, was uh, in Nice at the time of the atrocity there. And mm. it, it, not only did she report on it, but it clearly affected her very deeply mm. as well. She's been very open about that. How do you how do you strike that balance between, you know, the, the kind of... Uh, dispassion that objectivity that you have to have as a journalist but also being a human being and seeing the suffering mm. firsthand well it it was absolutely terrifying actually being in the earthquake but in all honesty you know we got off lightly where we were i mean the house that we were in was very damaged and we all had to evacuate it but in the real damage took place uh, quite a way away from where we were we were fairly isolated so we didn't see I think I mean it's something like three hundred people died in that earthquake, but where that happened, we were quite aware away. So, so it was relatively easy to be dispassionate about it. And I think what happened was I we were all sitting in the garden at four o'clock in the morning after we'd left the house, and I think I tweeted something. And then after that, I just you know I couldn't stop the requests coming in because the you know news twenty four hour news everybody wanted a comment. But um, but it was because we didn't see the. The real horror. I mean, it was terrifying for us, but we no, nobody got hurt. It was uh, it, you just snap it back into action the minute something like that happens. Do, do you like reporting? Then was that it? Was that a, did you get a kind of journalistic thrill going back to the actual reporting of the news? Yeah, I, th- I think I, I think uh, yeah, I did. And I think when you're an editor, you slightly lose confidence in your ability. You start you you often think, well, could I actually go back in the field and do it? And I did about two years ago, just. For various reasons, I went to um, to Colombia before their uh, peace referendum to interview the president. Don't ask why, but I did. And uh, I was really taken aback by how much I enjoyed it. I was very anxious going out there thinking, God, you know, I've got to write an interview. When was the last time I did that? But I, I found the whole experience really thrilling. I suppose it's a bit like a head teacher going back into the classroom. Oh, that sounds really pompous, but you know what I mean. I mean, it was just good fun to, 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 to actually do the journalism. Um, so, yeah, I do enjoy it, but wouldn't want to make too much of a habit of it. Penultimate question then. What's the best bit of your job and what's the worst bit? OK, the best bit are my colleagues, because I do work with some incredibly talented, interesting, funny people. So coming in every day, I mean, it's honestly, what a gift. It's brilliant. The worst bit 
I, sp- I suppose the worst bit is this sort of sense of, and I say it's worse, but it's also a challenge, this sense that you can't keep still, that we are an industry under pressure and, uh, you know, we have to maintain rigorous journalistic standards whilst trying to make money, uh, you know, whilst dealing with this digital revolution. So it, it can be, at times, it can feel very two steps forward, one step back. But again, I mean, it's good to have a challenge. It keeps everybody on their toes. Final question then. What advice would you give to someone starting out in their career that's maybe doing a journalism degree at the moment that wants to be the next deputy editor of the Times? Uh, My advice would be write as much as you can. Get involved where you can. Persevere. Don't give up. I mean, you know, there there are so many more outlets now than there used to be. So write blogs, um, you know, get involved, write for trade trade publications, write for websites. Just be really enthusiastic and don't give up. I mean, in many I used to think, oh God, I wouldn't I wouldn't tell a young person to go into journalism. But I've changed my mind about that now because actually I think in many ways there are many more outlets now and it's there are more possibilities for young people wanting to get into journalism than there, than there were when I started. Emma, that was hugely interesting and hugely enjoyable. Thank you for your time. Thank you. A Right Angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.